Well, this morning, we're starting chapter 2 of Ephesians. On September 13th, last fall, we started the book of Ephesians in chapter 1, and now we come to chapter 2 this morning. And I hope that as we've worked through that last chapter, you've seen some amazing things. I mean, we saw the plan of redemption that started to unfold in Christ and how God has prepared an inheritance for us and we saw the power of God demonstrated in Jesus and raising him from the dead and all the just wonderful things in chapter 1. And now we move on into chapter 2. So this morning, we're going to take the first three verses, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2. And I've said this before, I don't want to go so slow that everyone gets bored and you're kind of sick of what we're doing, but I don't want to go too quick and miss some of the really important things. And as I was looking over this section this week, there's, I mean, every phrase, every word that Paul uses is so good. So I'm not going to get super detailed this morning, but Paul doesn't waste words. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's writing, and everything he writes is for our good, for our benefit. So we're going to look at those first three verses today. I always encourage you to have your Bible open when I preach And I want to do that especially today. It's going to be really important for you to kind of see what we're doing as we walk through. If you don't have one, those are also available on the table. invite you to take one. Take it home with you. That's a gift for you. Um, But follow along today as we read. So why don't we open to Ephesians chapter 2. And I'm going to read the first 10 verses. It's kind of the first section here in chapter 2. And then we will look at the first 3. So follow along please. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you watch walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray as we begin. Father, until sin is bitter, Christ will not be sweet to us. So this morning, as we look at these first three verses and see the universal problem of sin, I pray, Lord, that this would be held in contrast to the grace and mercy that you provide. I'm so thankful for your word, Lord, that informs us of who we once were. But that's what it is. It's it's who we once were. If we are in Christ, if we have accepted the free gift of salvation through Christ alone, we belong to you. We are no longer children of wrath, but we are adopted into your family. So Lord, this morning, please give me clarity as I preach. Lord, don't let me get in the way of what you want to communicate here through your word and through your spirit. I pray for these brothers and sisters, Lord, in the hearing, that the word would fall on them, just like Josh said earlier, that it would do everything that you have intended your word to do this morning. 
commit myself to you. I commit this body to you. Pray a blessing over us in Jesus' name. Amen. So I think the main point of these 10 verses is found right in the middle in verse 5. If we look at this whole 10 verses as a section, I think the main point Paul's communicating is that we have been made alive together with Christ. It's the main thrust, I think, of what Paul is communicating here. But before he can get to the good news, he has to explain why it is such good news. That was a Thomas Watson quote that he said that until we know that sin is bitter, we're not going to see Christ as sweet. So Paul is doing that. That's where Thomas Watson got that, is from reading these sections of Scripture and seeing that we need to understand the helpless, hopeless, awful condition that we were in apart from Christ. So that when we get to verses 4 and 7 and 8 and 9, we will really have wonder and worship for what Jesus has done for us. So here's my outline, just so you know kind of where we're going to go in these 10 verses. I'm going to take these 10 verses in four different sermons. So this morning we'll do one through three. Paul reminds us of mankind's condition apart from Christ. Next week we'll do verses four through seven. And Paul tells us then, contrasting what we see today, of the mercy and the love of God and gives us a taste of what's coming that he has raised us with Christ and seated us in the heavenly places and will show us immeasurable riches of his grace. That's what's coming for you if you're in Christ Jesus. Then eight and nine, we see the how of our salvation. How were you saved? How did God take you, if you're in Christ, from this death, from this darkness, and put you into the kingdom of God? We see that in verses eight and nine. And then I'm gonna take a whole message on verse 10. This is the why of our salvation. Sometimes when we talk about faith alone, grace alone, apart from works, which the Bible teaches, we kind of neglect that good works are a part of our salvation. It's the outcome of your salvation, why God saved you. I think this is important enough to take a whole Sunday and talk about that. So that's the outline for where we're going to go. Let's look at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2 now this morning. So remember that Paul is writing to the churches in and around Ephesus. And a lot of these believers were saved, as we've talked before, out of idol worship, out of worshiping false gods, out of worshiping nature, pretty much worshiping anything except for the one true God. And some were just simply more of an agnostic. They didn't believe in anything. There was no faith. There was no inclination towards religious things. So when he says you were dead in the trespasses and sins, in verse 1, he's writing to educate them about the severity of their condition apart from Christ, and to remind them of what they have been saved from. When we talk about being saved, or we hear testimonies or something, sometimes when a person is saved young, or saved out of a Christian home, or just a moral home, sometimes we forget that Apart from Christ, no matter what your circumstances, no matter how you were raised, anything, apart from Christ, the Bible teaches we were dead spiritually in sin. Sometimes it's hard to remember because you think, well, I didn't, I didn't really feel like that. I mean, I hadn't, you know, stolen a car or done whatever. And we kind of get to thinking, well, maybe I wasn't quite that bad. And that's why Paul writes this, to remind us that apart from Jesus, there is no hope for spiritual life. He's the only one who brings this life a lot of times people use analogies to try to kind of explain the reality of salvation. And one that maybe you've heard this one is 
Well, you were drowning in this ocean and, and God throws the life rope out to you. I don't like that analogy. And here's why. The Bible doesn't say here that we're drowning and we just need a little help. It doesn't say we were sick and we needed the right prescription. It doesn't say you were incomplete and needed some kind of, you know, just the next nudge to get you there. It's very clear. We were dead. D-E-D. Dead. I didn't do good in grammar and spelling anyways. But you know why Paul uses this language? Dead. Because if the other scenario were true, if, if we're kind of doggy paddling in the water and this rope comes and we're like, oh, sweet, and you reach out and you grab it, what just happened? You contributed to your salvation. And don't tell me we wouldn't say that because I know my own heart. I know that I'm selfish and prideful and I'm hesitant to receive things for free because I've got to work for it. We would think that way if that was the case, but it's not the case. That's not what God's word is telling us here. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Paul doesn't say this to make us all depressed and to think just hammer us down and beat us down with this. This is a reminder. That's why he uses past tense. Right? You see that right in the text? And you were dead. He's going to use that past tense contrast three different times in these three verses. You were dead among whom you once lived. We were children of wrath. He's creating a contrast for us. This is what he's helping us to see. He's helping us to see that we are in desperate need of saving and rescue and life. We don't just need to be pulled into the boat. We need to be scraped up off the bottom and have new life breathed into us. As we continue in verse 1, Paul uses two words to describe what this deadness is. Where did this deadness come from? He uses two words, trespasses and sins. Now, when we read this, you might think, well, why use two different words? I mean, aren't they kind of saying the same thing? And they are. But sin is such a pervasive, deadly, and far-reaching reality that we need help in understanding it completely. Sinclair Ferguson is an author that I read quite a bit. And he says, the more important a word is in a culture, the more words you will find to describe it in their language. Right? We understand that. The more important a word is, the more ways that we have of talking about something. And we certainly see this as you read the Bible. You're going to see this as you read through the Bible this year. Trespasses, sin, Iniquity, transgression, wickedness. All of these different words describing the same reality, the same sin. But thanks be to God, there's also an abundance of words that talk about his grace. Forgiveness, mercy, compassion, long-suffering, steadfast love, patience. This is what we were, but it's not where we are as Christians. So what's the difference between trespass and sin? Well, on one hand, there really isn't. Like I said, it's, it's two words talking about the same reality. It's called a hendiadis, which is a literary thing where people use two or more words to describe the same reality. And that's what Paul's doing. But he still uses both words. And so there's a little bit nuanced, just slightly different interpretation of both of these. So I want to take them one at a time. 
First, think about the word trespass as a willful disobedience of a known commandment. A trespass is a willful disobedience of a known commandment. Some of us hunt, or you have hunted, and you're walking, you get to the edge of the field, you come to a barbed wire fence. There's a sign on it that says, no trespassing. Or if you see a sign that says, posted, no going beyond this point, whatever. At that point, we know the requirement. You're not supposed to go and cross that line. If you do, you have trespassed. You've gone against the written, known command. Now take that spiritually. When Paul says trespass, he means when we step over the boundary that God has put in place, his known law, his revealed will, as revealed in the scriptures, when you step over that boundary, you have trespassed against God and are therefore liable to receive the punishment for that. The word sin. In this context, we can think of sin not so much as the things we do, but in terms of who we are. If trespasses are the things, the going beyond what we already know, we can think of sin in terms of who we are because of Adam's fall. Okay, these are the things that Paul talks about in Romans 3. We all have sinned and fallen short, missed the mark. It's in us. It's not just the things, the sins that we do that are the problem. It's the fact that we are sinful. The, the acts, the things, what your hands do, what your mind does, it's coming from somewhere. It's the sin that's inside of us. If you want to see a more complete treatment of this, in Romans 5, the second half, 12 to 21, Paul really deals with this and the connection to Adam, how sin came into the world and spread to everyone. And it's a worthwhile study. So let's keep moving now in Ephesians 2. Paul says, read along with me, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Following the course of the world. I'm guessing most of us are familiar with what a course is. Think about, some of you have this sin problem and you golf. And think about a golf course. Right, what's the point of a golf course? Well, you start on one end and you work your way through and you get to the other side. Or sometimes we say the river runs its course. What do, we, what do we mean? We don't mean that it just goes in all directions. We mean that it follows a specific course and the river runs that way. So what does Paul mean here when he says, we were following the course of this world? I think he's saying that the world has a specific and definite direction. A specific and definite direction. There is a destination that the world is heading for. And prior to coming to faith in Jesus, we were all headed the same way. Following the course of this world. Whether you were saved at 5, 15, 50, that was a, that's what Paul is writing to tell us. We were following the course of the world. And it should be noted here, I think, that the course of the world... The way that the world is going is almost never in step with the course of the kingdom of God. Let me say that one more time. The course that the world is going, the way we used to walk, is almost never in step with the way that the kingdom of God is going. I say almost never because in God's grace 
and compassion and undeserved mercy, sometimes ungodly leaders are given the ability to make decent and good decisions. Decisions that limit persecution of Christians or advance the freedom of religion or whatever the case may be. Those are things that do help the advance of the gospel and align. But by and large, the world is headed in a very specific direction and it is not the same direction as the kingdom of God. Don't fool yourself. When I was growing up, I can't remember, Dad can clarify if this was a picture you had or a picture my grandma had. There's a picture of my Uncle Philip, and he was standing on top of two horses. You remember this? He had the reins in his hand, one foot on one saddle, one foot on the other. And as a kid, I remember looking at that and knowing it was silly because that wasn't going to last. That was going to probably end with some missing teeth or something. You can't, you can't do that. You can't have one foot on one horse, one foot on the other, and expect that to go well. And we might chuckle at that image in our minds, but are we guilty of that as Christians, even now? Are we trying to kind of keep that one foot over on that saddle in the way that the world is going, and yet also be in the kingdom of God and go that way? That isn't going to last. That's not sustainable riding, and you will get thrown off. We need to decide as Christians which course are we following? Which one is it? Many people when they're converted and they're saved, especially later in life, we come into the kingdom of God and maybe there's things that you just find too restrictive and you kind of hang on to some of that past stuff. It might not be intentional. It might just be things that you don't really want to let go of or you can't let go of or whatever it is. But a lot of people try to keep one foot here and one foot here. And what Paul is telling us is that the world follows a really specific course. And I'm telling you that it is not the same direction as the kingdom of God. James spoke about this in James chapter 4. Verse 4, he says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever makes himself a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Brothers and sisters, God saved you at great cost to himself, the sacrifice of Jesus. Do not go and make a mockery of that salvation by trying to hang on to the things that you once walked in. You were saved from those things. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, or swindlers, none of them will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. This is what Paul's saying in Ephesians. This is the way you used to walk. But then what does he say? But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have been saved from the old way of living. Don't go back to it. Don't go back to the course of the world. God pulled you out of that. The world doesn't need more worldly Christians. And oh my word, in this day and age, that's more important than ever. 
The world does not need people who follow whatever's popular in the culture, who follow the norm of the world. We need Christians who are willing to take a risk for the gospel, who will live truth even when it's unpopular, who will speak truth in love even when it ostracizes you or alienates you or you might lose a relationship. It's worth it because that's what you were called from. That is not how we walk now. That is what you were saved from. Don't go back. Don't go back to that life. God has rescued us from the domain of darkness, brought us into the kingdom of the light. Don't go back. Get your foot off that saddle and ride that one. Don't try to do both. It will not last. This is the newness of life that we've been called to. Paul's going to talk about this more in chapter 4. But in Romans 6 we read that we were buried together with him into baptism in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Why do we baptize believers? One of the reasons is to give public testimony to the fact that we are no longer going to the world's way. We are walking in newness of life. Christ has redeemed us. We walk this way. We do not follow the course of the world. One more thing Paul includes here in verse 2 is that when we were following the world, right? This is past tense, hopefully. When we were following the world, we were actually following Satan. Look at the text with me. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The prince of the power of the air is none other than Satan himself. When you follow the course of the world, you're following the world's leader. This is why I can say with pretty good confidence that the course of the world and the course of the kingdom of God are not the same course. They have two very different leaders, two very different paths, two very different outcomes. Now before we move on to verse 3, I want to ask you to do something. This is something that I did this week. I'm not asking you to do something that I didn't do. I want you to take a few minutes, not maybe right now, maybe when we come to the table, or maybe later this afternoon, and I want you to think about your life the way it is right now. Snapshot, boom, this moment in time. And I want you to think and try to determine, are there still parts of your life that you have not let go of from the old life? Are there still things, are there still habits, language, attitudes, addictions, entertainment choices, whatever it may be, are there still things in your life that fall into that category of the course of the world? Think about that. Ask God to reveal those things to you. And when you find them, give them up to him. Don't carry that around with you. It's not what you were saved for. Get rid of it. Lastly, let's look at verse 3. One of the things that I love about the Apostle Paul is that he does not take an attitude of superiority over his readers. He includes himself with them in the struggle. Right, verse 3, he says, "...among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh." He identifies with them. We all. 
We all once lived, and he's not saying, well, you guys did this, but see, I was a Pharisee, and I was super spiritual, and I have this going for me, so I'm kind of, I'm the teacher, and I'm kind of above you. No, he, he puts himself, we all once lived in those things. Why do you think that's important for us right now to know? You know what it does, one of the things it does? It gives you commonality with the people that you are trying to witness to. We as Christians do not go to non-believers and say, I've got it together, and I want to tell you how you can be like me and have it together too. We're all a bunch of losers. We're sinful. And Paul says, we all were like this. So when you talk to people, you have common ground. People say, I don't know what to talk about. Talk about this. Talk about the fact that you used to be a horrible person. But God in his grace saved you. Paul includes himself here in this by saying, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. He does not remove himself from this indictment. So living in the passions of the flesh is just another way to say, we gave in to the desires we had. We gave in to the desires we had. When I read this, I thought about King Solomon from the Old Testament. David's son reigned after him. This is what we read about in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. This is Solomon speaking. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. Solomon lived in the passion of the flesh. Anything he wanted or desired... He got. I think this is the behavior Paul is referencing in part in Ephesians 2. When we live in the passion of the flesh, there is nothing off limits. Nothing you can't have. Nothing you shouldn't have. Paul talked about this in Romans 8 when he refers to the mind that is set on the flesh. Verse 5 of chapter 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit He's making contrast again. Set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh, Paul says, is death. This is the way of the world. This is the course that we used to walk in, and it does not lead to life, but it leads to death. This is what the world would have you to do. Right? This is is the message. Follow your heart. If you want it, take it. You can do it. You deserve it. Sometimes at our men's Bible study, someone brings donuts. Luke, you could finish this sentence for me. The donut place in Monticello has a box, and on the box it says, you deserve a donut. No one deserves a donut. (laughs) Okay, I just want to make that really theologically clear. But that's the attitude of the world. You deserve it. Take it. Have it. You can do it. That is contrary to what the Word of God instructs us. The flesh says, I need the next thing. I need the next fix. I need the next toy. I need the next car. I need the next phone. I need the whatever. You can do it. You deserve it. You can have it. That's what our flesh says. In contrast, God says, I'll supply your needs. Trust in me. Find contentment in me. Paul says this in the book of Philippians. I've learned in every situation to be content. I think that contentedness is the opposite of pursuing the pleasures of the flesh. We're either pursuing constantly our desires or you find contentment in who God is, what he has promised to provide for you, and 
keep in mind that those are not always immediate fulfillments. God promises things. And sometimes we don't get them right when we want them. But God calls us to have contentment, not to pursue the passions of our flesh. It's probably easier for us to recognize passions of the flesh that are visible. Right in Galatians 5, Paul lists out a bunch of stuff. And he says these are the works of the flesh and they are evident. In other words, clearly seen. Right, he says that. But what about the things that happen inside of our mind? Paul says that these passions of their flesh are both the body and the mind. Okay, so what about the things that are inside? And I think that these hidden things, the things that go on in our mind, are just as dangerous as the external things, the things we do. Because you guys know, Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, the hands move, the boot kicks, whatever the situation. It's not our arms that are the problem, it's the heart. It's what's going on inside of us, which is why Paul delineates between the mind and the body. We were carrying out these passions of your mind and your body. Now, someone might say, well, okay, come on, what's the big deal? I'm not hurting anything. No one even knows that I do this. I don't really see the big problem. Paul ends these three verses by telling us that this kind of living, following the course of the world, fulfilling every pleasure, every desire that you have, it has an outcome. Look at verse 3 with me again. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. That's the end of this kind of life. You live according to the flesh, you never confess sin, you carry on in the course of the world, you will incur upon yourself the just and holy wrath of God. Read Romans chapter 2. Can't get away from it. It's not innocent. God doesn't sit up in the heavens and kind of look down and say, no, they can do whatever they want, it doesn't matter. No, every sin, every trespass, every compromise of God's law is a sin directly against God, and it will result in punishment. I think Paul writes these three verses not only to tell us of what happened, but to warn us, to warn us that this kind of living will end in destruction. And if we know that, if everyone in this room understood that, what would be the most loving thing for you to do with that information? Tell someone who doesn't know. I bet you know someone who doesn't know this. I bet you know someone who's just going through life willy-nilly. They don't know that the end of their living is destruction. That's why the church is here. That's why you're here. Don't just read this and say, man alive, I'm glad that's not me anymore. And you should be glad. We should praise God for the fact that we are no longer walking there if you're in Christ. But more than that, take what we've heard today. Take this. This week, we are all going to interact with someone this week. Pray that God would give you an opportunity to share this. You can be kind about it. You don't have to carry a big hammer. A little one will do. Right? People need the truth, but they need it in love. 
But I promise you, there are so many people who don't know that if nothing changes in their life, they will die as under the wrath of God. Which might not mean anything to them, but then you can tell them. You can take what you know of the scriptures and apply this to the people. I know this has been a heavier message. And sometimes it's not fun to take a look at yourself and kind of see what's going on, but it's so important. It's one of the reasons we come to the table every Sunday. We want to keep short accounts with God. Don't let sin drag out and out and out and out. Kill it. Take care of it. This, this contrast that we're going to see next week between this morning's text and what's coming, sin and God's mercy that saves us is meant to produce in us thankfulness to God and motivation for sharing with others. And now as we come to the table this morning, I just want to go back to what I asked you earlier. Take a moment. Think about your life. Think if there is anything that you need to let go of. Release anything that still belongs to your former life and do that. Come to the table ready to meet with God. Let's pray. Father, the prophet was right when you spoke through him and said, is my word not like a fire and like a hammer that breaks the rock to pieces? Lord, you've said in your word that apart from Jesus, we have hearts of stone, hearts that are cold, indifferent, And I pray that your word would be the hammer that breaks that heart of stone to pieces. And then just as you've promised, Lord, remove that heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh that beats for you. Thank you for this text. Thank you for the hard reminder, Lord, that the world is headed in a certain direction. And if you have called us into your kingdom, you've called us to walk opposite of that. I pray that we would all know how to put this into practice in our lives. We would not go back to the world. We wouldn't cross that fence. We wouldn't cross the line of trespass and go back, Lord, but we would walk in this newness of life that you've provided through Jesus. Make this a reality, please, in all of our hearts. I pray in Christ's name, amen.